You're listening to sermon audio from Providence Baptist Church. Be sure to check out pbcfrankfort.org for more information. If you have a Bible, I'd like you to turn two places today. Matthew 5 is where we will begin. Matthew 5, we're going to be in verses 43 through 48 in that section. And then we're also going to be in 1 John 3 today. First uh, John 3. So if you want to put a piece of paper there or mark that somehow, and we'll, we'll look at that a little bit later. Um, I was blessed and surprised Wednesday night by members of our praise team who purchased me a nice new little stand-behind speaky thingy. Um, I think the, uh, tip, the uh, actual word for it's a podium, but uh, I was very grateful for them uh, to bless me in that way. I thank them for that, and uh, it, it fits me nicely. It's, it's like a glove for me already, so thank you all to, to that for that blessing. As you're turning there and getting ready, I want to share with you today the first of three stories that are going to speak to what we're talking about in the scriptures today or what Jesus is challenging us, what God is challenging us with. In September 2015, uh, the website The Voice of the Martyrs, which is a website that details Christian persecution and events like that around the world, they ran a story about a man simply known as Pastor Morris who ministered and lived in an area of the Nuba Mountains in Sudan. And the story they published was this, that as a part of that ongoing civil war that was existing in that place, uh, Sudanese Air Force planes, government planes, had bombed his village and villages around his village as they had continually done for, for some time. And one morning after a bombing run occurred, Pastor Morris gathered up soap and food and clothing and shoes and headed off to the local jail where Muslim prisoners of war, Muslims who had supported and even been a part of that government uh, action against its people, where these individuals were being held. And he took them food and he took them clothing and he took them shoes. And as he left that morning, his son asked him, Are these not the people who are bombing us with their airplanes and killing our people? Why are you taking these food items to them to survive when they are killing us? Pastor Morris replied to his son, My son, this is because Jesus says we have to love our enemies. Because of the command of Jesus, this is why I'm prepared to go and visit them. His life had been changed and transformed from a Muslim youth to one who trusted and had his faith in Jesus Christ as a young boy. And he was now subject to the very hatred that he as a Muslim youth had been taught to speak to other people who did not belong to their religion. And God transformed his life. And not only transformed his life and brought him from darkness into light, but he transformed his life so that in this moment in time, he could go and love his enemies in this way. It's the first of three stories today as we talk about this idea of our Advent gift exchange this week, which is trading hate for love. In the New Testament, the word hate is used 40 times in my particular translation in ESV. And 39 of the 40 times it's used, it's the same Greek word that means to dislike or be disliked intensely, to be disgusted with or to to look upon or be looked upon in disgust. 
and to have an aversion towards someone, essentially that you don't even want to be in their presence. 39 of the 40 times it's used in the scriptures, it's used with that word and that describing. Now, some of you who are knowledgeable of the scriptures might immediately be turning in your head going, well, wait a second, isn't there a place where Jesus says we're supposed to hate our family? Well, I, I anticipated that, so I want to speak to that for just a moment before we get further. Luke 14, 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, which is sometimes the part that we leave out of that, he cannot be my disciple. We know that words and the severity and the intent of words are often determined by the context in which they're used. And the context of Luke 14 where Jesus speaks this is the context of discipleship and the context of following Jesus. Immediately after he says those words about family and about even our own life, he launches into a story about a man who sought to build a tower and did not consider the full cost of the tower. And when he got to the end of it, he couldn't pay for it to be done, and so thereby the tower never got completed. And Jesus tells that story to emphasize what he has just talked about with family, to teach about discipleship and to teach about the, the cost of following him, that we would recognize that even if it costs us everything, our own family, even if it costs us our own life, that we should consider that before we say yes to following him. We know that even in our language, the way we use the word hate, the severity of it is oftentimes determined by how we say it or the context of it. If you were to say to me, oh, last night we were driving home and we had a flat tire and we were 30 minutes late getting where we were going, I might say something like, oh, I hate that for you. But clearly in that context, I'm not, oh, I hate that for you. Right? It's not an anger. It's not a hatred. I'm not, yeah, you know. You might slide that plate in front of your kid on a dinner table. And I hate Brussels sprouts. And clearly, they're not out to murder Brussels sprouts. <laughs> but sometimes we do use it in a way that's very damaging. We use it in a way when we talk about people or other situations or I hate them. I hate that group of people. It, it, it wouldn't hurt my feelings to see them wiped off the planet of the earth. I hate them so much. When we use it in that sense, the severity of it, the intent of it is amplified. And so when Jesus uses it about family in Luke 14, he's using it as a teaching moment to understand that following him may very well cost you everything. Here in Matthew 5, as he talks about hate for our enemies, he uses it in such a way that it's a dislike, a disgust, an intense hatred for others. Let's read Matthew 5, 43 through 48 as we begin today. He writes, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. 
Jesus speaks for us for our first point here of understanding that we must begin to trade in the hate for our enemies for the love for our enemies. And he uses this word enemies here, and it is that hostile, opposing uh, animosity towards us, even perhaps to the point of injury, even perhaps to the point of a very personal hatred to us. And make no doubt about it, Michelle read earlier from Romans 5.10 that while we were enemies of God, God sent his son. It's the same word in Romans 5 as it is here. That it wasn't just that we just didn't know God, that in our sinfulness, we were personal enemies of God. And yet he had a love for us that showed itself in Jesus Christ. Arthur Brooks, who's authored books such as The Conservative Heart, The Road to Freedom, How to Win the Fight for Free Enterprise, He published a book in 2019 titled, Love Your Enemies, How Decent People Can Save America from the Culture of Contempt. And though he writes about the anger and the hatred and those things that exist in our society today, he proposes the initial descent into those things begins with an attitude of contempt towards one another. That contempt is a disrespect, it's a disapproval of something or someone, it's, a, it, it's placing that person beneath consideration or devaluing them just because of maybe what they say, believe, or do otherwise. And he writes about an event where he had written a book and a person had written him a 5,000 word email, blasting him over this book. Blasting him over the things he wrote, how wrong he was, how horribly it was written, how he was so naive to think that these things could happen and that our world could do this and, and all these things could happen. And Brooks tells the story in this book, Loving Enemies, that he, he pondered what to do with that email. And of course, what he wanted to do was probably be what most of us would wanted to have done. And he said eventually he got to the point where he realized he had an opportunity to respond in a different way. And he said he wrote back to the person with deep gratitude that the man had read his book. That he wrote back to him and said, I want you to know how thankful I am that you picked my book up off the shelf and you read it. I I poured a lot of time into it. I'm glad that you read it. I'm sorry you don't agree with everything that I read or wrote, but I am thankful that you read it and so on and so forth. And the man emailed back about 15 minutes later, and he lives in Dallas, and he said, and Brooks says that he said in the email, thank you for responding to me. If you're ever in Dallas, let me know. I'd love to buy you dinner and sit down and talk with you. From a 5,000 scathing word email to a, oh, I'd love to sit down and have dinner with you in Dallas. Brooks writes, the cycle of contempt depended on me. And I broke it with just a few words of gratitude. Why share that story? Because when we begin to devalue people, when we begin to dehumanize people, when we begin to uh, disrespect them, disapprove of them, when we do these things without even having the courtesy of perhaps getting to know them better or getting to know them as a person or to figure out why they think what they think or why they say what they say, when we just stand from a distance and put them under this umbrella of contempt, it is a short journey from contempt to hate. And it is often a quick journey from contempt to hate. And Jesus states here, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. 
and he's going to flip it upside down. Where did this come from? Leviticus 19 uh, verses 9 through 18 is a passage of God's instruction towards our neighbor. And verse 18 ends that section this way. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So where's the hate your enemy piece to that? Well, notice what Jesus says. He says, you have heard it said, not you have read it. You've heard it said, not that it's been put in God's words. And so most likely what had happened, we know the Pharisees, we know the, the Jewish teachers and the scribes of the law were, were very adept at adding their own personal little things into God's word. And so most likely what had happened was overextension and over time, the phrase had become love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. And whether that was an implication on their part, whether they thought that was just a natural progression, that if we love our neighbor, the natural thing to do is then to hate our enemy. But regardless of its origin, Jesus turns it over here. Look at what he says there again. Verse 43, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. He flips it. Regardless of the origin, regardless of how it came to be, regardless of how it came to be passed down among the people, he takes it and he flips it. In November 1960, a six-year-old black girl named Ruby Bridges was the first black girl to integrate into an all-white school in New Orleans. And on a daily basis, she had to be escorted into the school and while children and adults lined both sides of the sidewalk and yelled and harassed and threatened one of the news reports said that one adult even held a coffin with a black doll inside of it as she walked by. And one day her teacher, who had moved to New Orleans from Boston, because no teachers in that school would teach a black child. Her teacher, who moved from Boston to that school, was watching her walk in one day. And she said, as I could see her walking in, I could see her lips moving. And I wondered what she was saying to the people. And so she asked her when she got into class, what were you saying to the people as you walked by? And six-year-old Ruby's reply was, I wasn't talking to them. I was praying for them. I was asking God to be with me. But I was asking God to be with them, too. And she said, I ask God to forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Jesus says, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. And what we begin to understand from choices like Arthur Brooks and choices like Ruby Bridges is that this love that he's describing, that Jesus is describing here, this love is a choice. To, to pray and to love people who hate us and who are against us and who are opposing us, perhaps even to the point of injury or death, is a choice. It is the expression of our will. And it's the love that Jesus describes here, which is the same love that God had for us. While we were enemies, he chose to love us through sending his son. It's a love that doesn't draw motivation from someone's appearance or from what someone can do for me. It's a love that doesn't draw uh, its motivation from my emotion that I want to feel loving or from a sentimental place. It is a love of excellence because it is a selfless love. And it is a love that extends to people 
not because of anything that they can do for us or it's just simply an extension of the love that God has for us. Look at what Jesus goes on to say there again in verse 45. He says to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute you, verse 44, so that you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven. It reads in the English almost like it's an if-then statement. Like if you do this, then you get to be sons and by extension daughters of the Father. But it's not really that, that, that way in the language. It's not if you do this, then you get to be a son and daughter. It's really since you are a son and daughter, do this. Prove to others, make it evident in your life that you belong to God by loving those who hate you and praying for those who persecute you. The New American Commentary gives us this thought. The true test of genuine Christianity is how believers treat those whom they are naturally inclined to hate or those who mistreat or persecute them. And Jesus makes that very clear here. To show evidence that you are sons and by extension daughters of God. Love those who are your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And he gives us some specifics. He talks about the way God deals with them. Again, there in verse 45. The Father, he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Paul picks up on this in Romans chapter 12 as he's writing about the the marks of the true Christian. and, And he says, beginning in verse 17, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And, and there's an understanding there. Some people just don't want to live in peace. But as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with them. Beloved, never avenge yourself, nor, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, Paul says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head, a a metaphorical statement that essentially means conviction. Do not be overcome by evil, but be overcome or overcome evil with good. And Jesus says that that's who God is. He sends the sun on both. He sends the rain on both. He contrasts his followers and the people they naturally hated, verses 46 and 47. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Who were the tax collectors? Most likely, the majority of them were Jewish people who had turned their back on their own people to collect taxes for the Roman government to put many of their own people in poverty. And he says, if you... If you love those who love you, the people you hate, they they do that. Verse 47, if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? He says the, the, the pagans, the Gentiles, those who worship false gods, false idols, are involved in all sorts of things. Even they know enough just to greet certain people. He contrasts his followers with people that they are naturally inclined to hate. And he calls his followers to do more. He's telling them, he's telling us, if you're just willing to do the bare minimum, even those other folks know how to do the bare minimum. But to you and to me and to all who say yes to Jesus, we're called to do more. 
a question we must all ask ourselves is who are the people we are naturally inclined to hate and why? We, 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 we put people in this cycle of contempt in these groups of others, politically, religiously, ethnically, nationally, and we just, sometimes because of our own misunderstanding, sometimes because of all the other voices in our culture that speak to us that we don't take the time to discern, we, we just automatically put people into those groups as they put people in the tax collectors and the Gentiles into those groups and had disdain and hatred for them. And Jesus says that cannot happen. And he says it cannot happen, look at verse 48, because of this. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Must be perfect is a present tense command, which means it is something that we are to be daily striving for. There's, there's two phrases you're going to hear today that I suggest we get rid of, uh, rid of in our vocabulary. And this is the first one. The first one we need to get rid of as Christians is, well, I'll never be perfect this side of heaven. While that is a true statement, the moment you and I utter that, what we are really saying is, so it's not a big deal if I mess up. It's not a big deal if I slip up. God doesn't expect any more from me than that. And we wouldn't, we wouldn't hear that phrase from anybody else in any other setting. Your favorite basketball team, basketball player, if they were to give an interview and say, well, you know, I know I'm not going to make every shot, so I don't really even try. Your favorite musician that you love, to, well, you know, I know I'm not, not going to hit every note right, so I just get up there and kind of wing it, and, you know, I, I, just, I just do what I can. We would never accept from anybody else this perception that, well, I'm never going to be perfect, so what's the point? Because we demand a level of perfection and excellence from everybody else. And God demands a level of perfection and excellence from us. It's not doable under our own power. It's why he sent the Holy Spirit to indwell within us. It's why he sent Jesus to model for us and to teach us and then the new church to then explode all that out. But, but we must understand that what Jesus says here is not just a suggestion or not just a if you can. He is suggesting that in the moments where we can, we must be perfect. And this is not just a New Testament teaching. When God would speak to his people in the Old Testament, he used phrases like be blameless, be holy for I am holy. And God has always intended that his people strive towards that goal. And so in this setting, in this context, Jesus is telling us that when it comes to trading hate for love for our enemies, we must strive to be perfect. Secondly, hate for our own brothers and, again, by extension, our sisters. If you look at 1 John chapter 3, please. 1 John 3, beginning verse 11, and we're going to go through verse 15. John writes, For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers, and whoever does not love abides in death. And everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. 
And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. In Matthew 5, in Jesus' context, he's speaking of overturning hate for love for those who are outside of the body. John then picks it up and carries it over into his letter here in 1 John in terms of trading in hate for love for those who are inside of the body. Brothers and, by extension, sisters in Christ. And he uses this example of Cain and Abel that comes out of Genesis where Cain gets angry and murders his brother. And he asks the question in verse 12, why did he murder him? Because his deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. He even says of Cain in verse 12, Cain who was of the evil one. Jesus described the evil one in this way in John 8, 44, that he was a murderer from the beginning. And so a murder of a fellow human being is mimicking the work of the evil one. And so the objection may be raised here really quick. Well, being angry with someone's not like murder. Well, let's let Jesus speak to that. Back in Matthew 5. Beginning verse 21, you've heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. You say, oh, my, my being angry with a brother or sister in Christ and, and, and not really being, want to be around them and disliking them, that's not murder. Jesus says it's the equivalent. Right after that section in Matthew 5, he goes on to say one that we love to talk about, right? That he says, if you lust after someone with your eyes, it's the same as committing adultery. Did he not really mean that either? He equates those motives, those actions with the actual acts. And so John no doubt draws upon Jesus' words here when he says things like in verse 15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And he reminds us of the view that we have of ourselves. He reminds us of the world's view of us. Look again at verse 13 there in 1 John 3. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Jesus himself said that to the disciples before he left to go to the cross. The world's going to hate you. John reminds them of that. Do not be surprised when the world hates you. But he writes it in such a way that the implication here is, don't be surprised when the world hates you, but we should be surprised if a brother or sister in Christ hates us. When the world hates us, okay, we get that. But when our family relationships are cracked... When hatred and dislike and disgust and animosity and, and, and wanting to not even be a part of, of anybody's life begins to happen, that should be surprising to us. Remember, that is what hate is defined as. Dislike, dislike intently, disgusted with, disgusted intently, aversion, don't want to be around them. Here's another phrase that we need to get rid of as Christians. You ready? I don't hate them, I just don't like them very much. Because John does not give us that option. John gives us two options. If you hate your brother, sister in Christ, you're a murderer. The only other option is love. He does not give us a loophole here. He doesn't give us a, a way to say, well, you know, I just, uh, I don't hate them, but I just don't, you know, eh, no. He says, we know we've passed out of death into life, verse 14, 
We know we've made this move into the kingdom of God because we love the brothers. Again, it's the evidence that we are sons and daughters of God. It is the evidence that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. That we have passed out of death and life. That evidence is shown in the way that we love the brothers. And we know that to be true. Any other claim that we may want to make? I walked an aisle when I was six. I was baptized when I was seven. I repeated a prayer when I was eight. Any other claim we want to make about being a Christian runs mute if there's no evidence of a progression of love for the brothers and sisters in Christ. And John makes that specifically clear in verse 15. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. I mean, there are, there are places in Scripture that should shake us. And this is one of those, folks. We should be shook by the truth of the word that John says, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that says everyone who hates his brother and by extension his sister is a murderer and does not have life abiding in him. And that phrasing of everyone who hates there in verse 15 is to describe this continual, present, habitual hatred of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, that doesn't mean we don't have our moments. John, I think, speaks to that just a page back in 1 John where he says this beginning in chapter 1, verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar and the word is not in us. We all have our moments. I'm not suggesting that we don't, myself included. But we cannot have an habitual, consistent, persistent hatred for our enemies or for our brothers and sisters in Christ and say that we are following Jesus. We like to use this phrase all the time. You can't be Christian and be fill in the blank. What John has filled in the blank for us today. You can't claim to follow Jesus and hold hatred in your body for the brother and sister in Christ. And in 1 John 4, 20 and 21, as he sort of bookends this teaching, he says this. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he's not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And so you might ask the question, was... Does that mean there's no hope? There's no hope if I've harbored hatred for an enemy. There's no hope if I've harbored hatred for a brother or a sister. Is there no hope for me? Of course, there's always hope. That's the beauty of the incarnation of Jesus. The beauty of him coming to our earth and being born and living and dying and resurrecting and the spirit and dwelling within us. It's the beauty of the gospel. There's always hope. John even speaks to it. Again, in his letter from 1 John chapter 1, 
I'm going to come out of that same section I just read just a moment ago, beginning in verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What is the hope? The hope is that either through initial repentance and believing in the gospel and trading your life for Jesus' life for the first time or for the believer to live in continual repentance and when these things like hatred sneak into our lives or we allow them to be in our lives or we allow ourselves to take hold of them, that we confess and we repent and we come before the Lord and say, we have read your word and we know now this is not acceptable. And it doesn't mean, going back to our, our series on unity a few weeks ago, it doesn't mean we have to agree on every single thing. It doesn't mean that we have to live perfectly harmonious in every single way, but in the things and the ways of the kingdom of God, we do. And we should. There's a hope to reinstate us. There's a hope for forgiveness. There's a hope that God changes us. There's a hope that through repentance and confession, he takes our hatred and he makes it more his love but only God can do it it becomes your choice and my choice to act on it but only God can provide that change you may or may not recognize this name but a man named Jacob DeShazer was a soldier in the early days of World War II Tomorrow, or, or perhaps this afternoon, but probably tomorrow, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to post a YouTube link on our Facebook page that's an eight-minute video of him telling pieces of his testimony. And I, I do hope you'll take eight minutes and watch it and share it encourage others to watch it. But I'll give you a little bit of his story right now. He was one of the 80 soldiers who participated in the Doolittle Raid of Tokyo on April 18, 1942, just a few months after Pearl Harbor. And as you know that story, or if you know that story, you know that the majority of those men either were killed or they at least very much didn't make it out of the mainland and many crashed in, in dangerous places. And he and his crew were among those who crashed and he was imprisoned by Japanese forces for 40 months. Enduring torture and beatings and starvation, solitary confinement. And he says in his more lengthy testimony that while his parents were Christians, he had always been a skeptic. He, he had held their faith at a distance because he just wasn't sure everything about this Jesus was what they said it was. And in the midst of this imprisonment, about two years in, these prisoners of war were given Bibles unexpectedly and he said he began to read the bible and God saved him in that prison camp and he says God gave me the grace to confess my sins to him and I forgave and he forgave me all my sins and then he says this happened while still imprisoned mind you I discovered God had given me new spiritual eyes and when I looked at the enemy officers and the guards, I found my bitter hatred for them had changed to loving pity. He hadn't been released yet. 
still being held prisoner, still enduring beating, still enduring starvation, starvation. But as he ex- experienced the gospels and the truth of Jesus and the experience, the change in a new life, he moved his hatred into love and loving pity. Three years after World War II ended, he returned to Japan as a missionary. And there was a tract made about his life. And over a million copies were distributed in Japan in that area. And he was at an event where he was speaking in Japan. And a Japanese soldier named Mutsio Fuchida had read the tract about Jacob de Shaver, had found a Bible and had read about this Jesus and had given his life to Christ. And this was no ordinary Japanese soldier. Fuchida was the man who led the attack on Pearl Harbor. And for several years afterwards, DeShazer and Fuchida began to speak at ministry events side by side. Seeing thousands upon thousands of Christians be birthed in a land that had once been bombed and been an enemy. When Fuchita died in May 1976, DeShazer said this. He wept for his friend. <laughs> but he said this. I'm going to see him in heaven because he's a brother. Only God can turn an enemy into a brother. Because only God can turn an enemy into a son. And a daughter. Only God can do what we can't do of our own power. Because only God can take my life and your life. Not just that we just were not friendly with God. But that we were enemies with God. And turn us into his sons and daughters and his body of believers. And if he can do that for us. He can do that for us with others. I'm going to see him in heaven because he's a brother. What a powerful, powerful statement about a man who was once an enemy. Thanks for listening. If you have any thoughts, questions, or prayer concerns, please email us at pvcfrankfurt at gmail.com.